everyone agrees need affordable housing until a project gets proposed. Then significant amount of people find ways to not like it or oppose it. I don't know if I've ever been involved with a project where there was total unanimity around, yes, this is the right thing to do in the right place at the right time. Like there's always like, you know, what about, what about, what about? And, you know, folks have gotten really good at gumming up the works. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, talking some Vail Resorts today. First thing, please click over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. The email newsletter is the heart of the storm, where I am breaking down the world of lift surf skiing all year long. There is a free tier, and if you upgrade to the paid tier, you get thousands of words of extra ski area information and analysis every single month. Plus, podcasts drop into your inbox three days ahead of free subscribers. And check this out. I am rapidly following the evolution of the multipass landscape. And next week, the storm will have the news of multiple new IndyPass partners in your inbox on Tuesday, June 21st. So get in on that. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, time to talk about my partner, Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. And it's time. Mountain Gazette 197 is now shipping to subscribers. Featuring an iconic cover shot by Academy Award winner Jimmy Chin, Mountain Gazette 197 is the biggest issue of the magazine ever at 140 pages. Inside, you will find John Fahey's true crime Aspen Outlaw story decades in the making, Ari Schneider's carefully reported piece on the fraught world of outdoor social media influencers, former bike editor Joe Parkin's love letter to two wheels, backcountry clashes in Teton National Park, stunning art and photography, and there is even a tear-out poster. The biggest issue of the biggest outdoor magazine ever. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 90, Bill Rock, Chief Operating Officer of Vail Resorts Rocky Mountain Region and Executive Vice President of Vail Resorts Mountain Division. If you're listening to this, You have probably skied at some or all of the Rocky Mountain resorts that Bill Rock oversees. Vail, Beaver Creek, Keystone, Breckenridge, Crested Butte, Park City. I've been to them all and they are all amazing. But they are not without issues. Some of these were specific to last season, like the troubles that Vail had throughout its network fully staffing its mountains. Others are more persistent like the blocking of employee housing projects in certain mountain towns. Looking at you, Town of Vail, where a town council that has no problem with rampant mansion development is suddenly threatening to seize Vail's land rather than let them build a 145-bed employee affordable housing development. The reason? Suddenly, everyone is very concerned about the local bighorn sheep herd. A herd that has been there for all those decades that single-family mansions have been sprouting out of the Rocky Mountain dirt like flowers in the springtime. Very convincing, guys. Look, I'm not saying that Vail Resorts is a perfect company, but this project was approved in 2019, it stalled because of the pandemic, and now, after helping Vail defend the project in court, you're coming after them. For me, this is frustrating to even talk about, but this is the sort of issue that Bill Rock spends all of his time navigating. As obstructionists throw up obstacles to projects all over the West, I figured it was a good time to connect with Rock and see how the company was managing it. Let's do it. My guest today is the Chief Operating Officer of Vail Resorts Rocky Mountain Region and the Executive Vice President of the Mountain Division. The Rocky Mountain region includes six of the company's marquee properties, Vail Mountain, Beaver Creek, 
Keystone, Breckenridge, and Crested Butte in Colorado, and Park City Mountain Resort in Utah, which is the largest ski resort in the United States. He has spent more than two decades in the ski industry, leading Vail's trio of Lake Tahoe area resorts and holding the top jobs at North Star, Snowshoe, and Purgatory Ski Areas. He also worked at Stratton, Vermont, and spent two years as a platoon leader in the Army's 82nd Airborne Division. Bill Rock is my guest. Bill, welcome to the storm. So nice to connect with you. How are you doing today? Doing great, Stuart. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, excited to get a chance to chat with you today. All right, let's get right into it here, Bill, and, and talk about the 2021 to 22 ski season. Vale reported that year-over-year skier visits were up 12.5% in North America, and the NSAA reported last month that the U.S. actually set a record for ski area visits in a season with 61 million. How did the 2021 to 22 ski season go for Vail's Rocky Mountain region in particular? Yeah, um, thanks, Stuart. Yeah, it was actually quite a good year for the industry. Um, I think we certainly have seen across the board that COVID has given people new motivation to get outside. It was one of the few activities people could do and start and spend time with their families. And of course, the industry saw it, and we saw it in the Rocky Mountains as well. We just announced in our Q3 earnings, you know, what drove some of the some of the growth for the company, and some of that was destination visits and ticket sales, which is you know outside of the normal past product, which is quite interesting as well. And and one of the observations we had was that folks skied non-holiday and midweek. And I think the question that I have, and the question I think for the industry is, is that here to stay? For mm-hmm. someone like me who's been in this industry for a long time, we've often thought of that behavior change as the holy grail yeah. you know, of moving people around. And they did it this year in pretty big numbers. And so I'm hoping and thinking that the realization that folks can work remotely, that kids can study and go to school remotely, um, that people will spread out across the season. And we certainly saw that in the Rocky Mountains. And, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be fair to say look, we had our challenges. Perfect storm, I think, early season of low snow, lower staffing than we would have certainly wanted. And then the impact of Omicron hitting us right in the holidays. It was the concentration of these challenges right at the peak season that got us off to a rough start. And I think I'm super proud of our team, folks in our region, folks across the company who really rallied. And there were a lot of bright spots. You know, our team in the field, you know, the, there, there really is no Vail Resorts. Vail Resorts is a collection of our people. And the people worked so incredibly hard to deliver an experience of lifetime for our guests. And we had a, a lot of a great milestones, continued to improve throughout the season. A couple of examples, you know, Vail Resort had its longest season in history. And that's a result of a significant capital project and snowmaking that we made a few years ago. And they skied all the way till May 1st. The Beaver Creek, we opened McCoy Park, which I know you're interested in from listening to your podcast with Nadia. And I got to say that terrain is spectacular. It's low angle, but it's so fun. My family and I went out there several times and just couldn't wipe the smiles off our faces. And uh, we were so happy to welcome these skiers there. Uh, both Breck and Crested Butte celebrated their 60th anniversaries this year with new chairlifts on Peak 7 at Breck and Peachtree at Crested Butte. Uh, of course, Keystone opened with Peru Lift. And then Park City had a, had a tougher go uh, relative to staffing for sure. And there's some examples there. We, we have nearly no employee housing in Park City. And we're excited that we'll have, we've announced a new housing project in Park City for next winter. And so that certainly impacted us, but we were able to expand another 60 acres. We, we were able to make a deal with a landowner on Scotts Bowl and got that going. And our partnership with the National Ability Center, which is one of the premier, if not the premier, you know, organizations that serve challenged athletes, they're going to build a new building. They're, they're underway to hopefully start a new building soon on our site. And we'll have a 9,000 square foot facility, which will replace their original facility, which is certainly inadequate. And then I guess, you know, on a fun note, not but not least, you know, during COVID, we had to stop doing cooking time at Beaver Creek, but we brought it back. (laughs) And, you know, that's one of the most loved, beloved traditions in skiing (laughs) uh, across the, across the network. So, you know, yeah, we got, you know, certainly headlines about what went wrong, but I think couldn't be more proud of the team and how we rallied. And, you know, the company is all about continuous improvement. And um, that's what happened this year. We got better and better as the season went on. Gosh, Bill, there's so much good stuff in there. 
I want to go back to what you said about skiers spreading out across the week. And I'm curious how Vale's thinking about this as they look into the future from an operations and from an Epic Pass point of view. From an operations point of view, I'm curious if this better natural metering, like self-metering of skiers throughout the week is changing how you think about what lifts are open when and how you spread around staff. And then from an Epic Pass point of view, we're still looking at, with a few exceptions in your network, we're still looking at the traditional blackout days, right? You have the blackout periods around Christmas, around presidents, and around MLK. But in fact, a lot of Saturdays we'll see are as busy, if not busier, than holidays. And as, as, you, as people spread around, it seems like there's a good opportunity to rethink that. And I know in the Northeast, you have a midweek Epic Pass, and then at Stevens Pass, you have a a select pass that uh, edits out some weekends. Then in Tahoe, some of your epic passes also exclude Saturdays for certain resorts. But I'm just curious how you're thinking about those two pieces, that operations piece and the epic pass piece as these consumer habits and skier habits change at your resorts. Yeah, I think I think one thing, you know, like I said, the industry has been trying to spread uh, for decades. And to see that happen, not just at our resorts, but anecdotally, I've heard that from uh, my counterparts across the industry. And that's an awesome thing. And I think, you know, there's a couple of things that although the industry hit 61 million visits this year, the growth over the last decade is single digit 1%, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the industry has tremendous amount of capacity. It's just a matter of how that capacity gets used. And especially if you think about all the investments that we've done in lift uphill lift technology over the years on basically flat skier visits. So I think it's exciting. You know, I think it really represents an opportunity for the industry to make better use of its capacity to, you know, maybe shave off the peaks, spread people around a little bit. And to your point, you know, um, we will be able to, you know, operate accordingly. You know, we, there's times when we make decisions about lifts and restaurants based on volume, but typically in my region, you know, it's um, when we open, we stay open, keep it that way. Other regions can flex a little bit more, but certainly as we see guest visitation patterns, we'll make operating adjustments uh, as necessary. I think the second part of your question is really around data. You know, we have data, we have a lot of data, and it's one of the real strengths and strategic advantages of our company. And so as we see these things manifest themselves, we have ability to pull some levers, whether it's blackout dates or other innovative things we may think of for access products to be able to introduce to the public. As you know, for this year, we've set our product line set, but we'll always look at what's going on and make adjustments as necessary uh, as we look forward. So you, you mentioned you have a really unique region and you've worked all over the country. As I mentioned, Snowshoe and North Star and, and now you're uh, based in Colorado. What stands out about this region? It's, it's, I know it's kind of the epicenter of U.S. skiing, but from your point of view, from, from the inside looking out and having all this other experience, what makes this region so special? I've been in the industry for gosh, 20 plus years. And I think the Rocky Mountain West is aspirational. I remember my first ski area job, our rental shop had skis that were leftovers from Vail Mountain. Mm-hmm. They had the Vail logo on them. <laughs> I think, you know, our guests at Aspire to Go West. Where was that first job, Bill? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sorry. It was at Bristol Mountain in Western New York. So oh, cool. I, I, I can get into that later. But, uh, you know, I, I feel very privileged to have worked across the whole industry at small resorts, at regional destinations, at public companies, uh, and now, of course, with Vail since 2010. And I love skiing. I lo- all these resorts are amazing. And the fact that if people are sliding on snow and they're having fun, then mission accomplished, you know, and if, and of course the Rocky Mountain region, I, I feel incredibly blessed and, and honored and a great deal of responsibility to, to even imagine when I started my career that I'd be sitting in a position of being responsible for the resorts that you listed. Yeah, you would have, it, it was, it would have been mind blowing to me back then. And I feel grateful and, and honored to be able to do it. And um, luckily I get to work with amazing people. Yeah, it's, it's literally the top of the mountain. So let's go back to Bristol here. That's a great little ski area. I, I had a chance to go over there this uh, this past winter. Uh, take us through your career here. Where did you grow up and when did you start working in skiing? Yeah, so I grew up in a little town in Western New York State called Naples, New York, which is 
about 10 miles south of Bristol Mountain. And I started skiing with the ski club. I, mm -hmm. I was a typical, this is why I'm so inspired by our, our small regional urban resorts, because this is how I grew up. I paid for my eight visits. I got on the school bus at the end of the day. We skied until, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. We got lessons in rentals and got to go on the mountain with our friends. And that's how I got introduced to skiing. And I would say I was never like, I wasn't a ski racer and I never got super addicted to skiing. I was a, I was kind of a right down the middle center of the lane customer of skiing, skiing mm -hmm. five to 10 days a year. I was playing high school sports all three seasons, but I loved it. And I had, a, I, I really had a, a passion for it within, I don't know, 15 miles of my, of my house, there were three ski areas. Mm -hmm. um, two private plus Bristol Mountain. So I like the fact that I got to grow up learning how to ski. And I would say I never, never became more than like a solid intermediate skier in those okay. days. And then I went to college on an ROTC scholarship down at Clemson University. And so there's not a lot of skiing there, even though we did head up to Boone and Asheville to hit some of those areas on a couple weekends. I served in the military for a while. And when I got out of the military, I went home to my hometown. And I was a paratrooper, as you mentioned earlier, in the mm -hmm. Army. And I remember when I knew I was getting out of the Army and I jumped out of an airplane for the last time mm -hmm. and I, I landed on the drop zone and I thought to myself, how am I going to replicate this? You know, this feeling of camaraderie, this feeling of teamwork, this feeling of importance and the physical thrill you know, doing some really cool stuff. And I had, I had I ended up when I got out, I didn't find that for quite some time. I was doing a bunch of jobs, my degrees in microbiology. I was doing some sales jobs for scientific companies and I was okay at it, but I didn't love it. Mm -hmm. And one day, honestly, it was like, it was like a ray of sunshine came out from the clouds. I opened a newspaper. I never bought a newspaper, but I opened a newspaper and Bristol Mountain had a job and it was director of sales and marketing for the ski area. And I lived about six miles away and I I sent them a letter, sent Dan Fuller, the owner, a letter, and um, he rejected me. He sent me a rejection letter back, which I remind him of every time I see him, uh, <laughs> which is fun. And we went back and forth for a bunch of time, and he eventually hired me at Bristol to be mm -hmm. director of sales and marketing. And they're a, a you know, a day-night ski area. Dan is one of the, as far as I'm concerned, Dan's one of the best operators in the business, great mentor. And I felt incredibly grateful that he took a chance on me and, and gave me this opportunity. And I knew when I got this opportunity, this was going to replace all those things I mentioned about my military service. And it did, it has, you know, mm -hmm. it's leadership, it's um, great, passionate people, it's outdoors, it's doing something fun. It's, it just, it just clicked, checked all those boxes. And so I knew I didn't deserve the job with Dan and so I tried to outwork everybody. I did the snow report every day for 135 straight days for two years. <laughs> I, I was the night manager till 10 PM, just about every night. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I got to do immerse myself in the business. So I was really grateful for Dan to do that. Give me that chance. And once he did that, then I knew, okay, I'm going to try to make this thing happen for real. So uh, Bristol's an interesting place. I that's a big, when you look at Vail's national network, Western New York is a big hole. I think it's a big opportunity. There's some really good hills over there. What, what are your thoughts on Vail and Western New York? Yeah, you know, we don't really comment on what we might be <laughs> thinking about acquisition-wise. You know, we just obviously acquired Seven Springs in Western PA. There's some overlap there for sure, especially out of like Cleveland and uh, Eastern Ohio. And I tell you this, I mean, I, again, I worked in New York. I grew up in New York. There's some great scary operators in New York. Mm -hmm. And I think those guys, I think we all have lessons to learn from those folks, how to do high volume rentals, how to do lessons in big groups, like the, the, those resorts have figured it out. And uh, I'm, I'm always, you know, I have a lot of admiration for what they do. So you were at Bristol, uh, had a really, it sounds like ingrained yourself in the culture there. Take us from there to where you are now, just on that career journey. Well, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty wild journey. You know, I, 
when I was at Bristol, I, I kind of took on the mindset that I was the general manager because I kind of was when, you know, at night and things like that. And so then I knew I wanted to be in this business and I wanted a career and I knew that meant I would have to move. And so the next job was at Stratton Mountain and I went there to be the director of sales. But again, I, I kind of showed up as if I was running the place, which maybe, maybe made some folks angry. I don't know. <laughs> but but I, I took a lot of ownership of what was happening there and I tried to just be a problem solver. And so at my time at Stratton, I was there for five years and it was the heyday of IntraWest and it was fun. Mm-hmm. And we had some great folks there. And a lot of people are still there that are, that are lifelong friends of mine. And I really got a chance to raise my hand and do whatever I thought needed to be done to help move the business forward. So I ended up running hospitality for three years. I was responsible for human resources for a year. I ultimately had ski school, maintenance, you know, all these disparate departments reporting to me kind of simultaneously. So I used to joke that I was vice president of stuff nobody else wanted to do (laughs) and kind of really got a great generalist view of how to run a ski resort. You know, I never went too deep in any one department. I just got to go into a lot of different areas and just try to work and build a team and, and, and make it better and, you know, feel pretty successful in having done that. And so I, from that moment I mentioned where I was kind of begging Dan Fuller for a job, seven years later, I was recruited to be the COO at Purgatory. And so, and I knew, I knew I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to be like a VP of Mountain Ops somewhere. And that's where I was kind of focused. But again, like it happens to a lot of people, I had a mentor who kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, you're, you're going to be a great GM someday. And it, I didn't even, I hadn't, I wasn't even really thinking about it. But when he did that, it made, it made me think, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I could do that. And so when I got asked to, to think about purgatory, I, I went for it mm-hmm. and, you know, got the job and moved there. And we lived in purgatory for two years. I got married while we were there. I met my wife in um, Stratton, Jennifer. And we had twins in, in Durango. And I would say the rest of this journey, none of it would be possible without them. Um, they, uh, you know, my, my wife, shortly after um, the kids were born, I was offered the job to go back to Interwest and go to Snowshoe Mountain as the COO president. And we moved to Snowshoe with two and a half month old twins. And, you know, Snowshoe is an amazing place. I think it's very underrated. I think the people there are incredibly smart and dedicated and the experience there stacks up with anything in the East as far as I'm concerned. And, but to live there can be tough. It's remote and um, you don't have all the services you have in some other communities. And so, yeah, I'm eternally grateful to my family and Jennifer particularly for that move because it really was a springboard for where I am today. And so we were in um, Snowshoe for five years. And then I had been kind of talking to Vail Resorts on and off for a few years and never quite had a, a connection. And then when Vail bought North Star in 2010, I got a phone call from Blaze Carrig asking me to think about the role. And yeah, I wanted to come to Vail. I wanted to go back out West. Northstar, I wanted to go to Lake Tahoe and it was awesome. It was the first acquisition that really started the growth of the company that we've seen over the last 11 or 12 years and really a springboard again for my career here in the company. So within a few years there, I was overseeing all three resorts in Tahoe. And then when we purchased Park City side of, um, you know, Park City Mountain now, I was asked to go there and lead that integration. So through through all that, North Star, Park City, incredible capital projects. We spent $30 million at North Star the first summer. We spent $50 million in Park City the first summer. So, you know, I've been able to be able to be a part of some really transformational projects and some really transformational resort um, initiatives across the board, which has been fun. And then just before the pandemic, when we brought on Peak Resorts, we decided we needed a regional structure. And so my family and I moved close to Broomfield to lead the Rocky Mountain region. And I had been on the executive committee for the company um, for a year then as well. So I was leading Park City Mountain plus on the executive committee of the company. And then now I'm running all the Rocky Mountains plus on the on the EC and have been here since October of 2019. So it's been a uh, Quite a journey, but thankful for all the opportunities and mentors I've had. I've mentioned a few, Blaze, Dan Fuller, Michael Cobb, you know, folks along the way that really helped me see the future and helped me get there. Gosh, what is it about North Star as a sort of a, a jumping off point for executives at Vail? Because you were running that resort and then 
Nadia, who runs Beaver Creek now, was running it. And then Deirdre, who was running North Star, just got promoted to Park City. I I want to say, was Beth Howard there as well? And, and now she's yeah. running Vail. So, so what, what, why, what makes North Star sort of, the, is that just a coincidence? Or, or is this just kind of an ideal mountain for, for uh, sort of mentoring up and comers for some reason? Yeah, no, it actually, it's not, I don't think it is a coincidence. It is a great mountain to mentor folks because it has all the aspects of a large destination resort, all the components, right? It's got a homeowners association that's complicated. It's got land ownership issues that are complicated. It's, it's got volume. It's got the weather challenges that you face in Tahoe with boom or bust. It's got all those things. And so it, I think it is a great place to develop, learn skills, build a team, and ultimately move on. And it's one of the advantages of our company is that we have this network now where we can move people who've gained the right skills and develop proper way, you know, to fill the pipeline for the big destination resorts, which is, which is a big leg up. I would, I would hate to come into Breckenridge without having run a complicated resort ahead of time. Yeah. No question that Vale has developed a strength in leadership promotion from within. And this past spring, Vale announced a, a very large scale investment in all of its employees, $175 million annually announced in March. This was a multifaceted plan, includes a $20 minimum wage for frontline workers beginning next ski season, an aggressive focus on developing employee housing on Vail-owned land, a substantial increase in your dedicated regional HR teams, a flexible work policy, a leadership development program. There were some other elements in there. Why did Vail Resorts launch this initiative now? Why was this the right time to do it, Bill? Yeah, I think it's clear, you know, it's no secret and you've covered it so others. You know, we had challenges this season. If you would have been talking to me a year ago today, I would have thought, well, we're pretty well set up for this coming winter. You know, we had just raised the minimum wage to 15. We had a lot of things going for us that we thought would be good, but we underestimated the global shortage of staff for sure. Again, I talked about earlier, but when Omicron hit and took people out of busy holiday periods, you know, it certainly impacted us in our in our guest experience. It was hard. Not only did it impact our guests, it impacted our employees. I mean, our employees just incredibly dedicated to get through it all and doing some effort. Normally, you know, ski industry folks are dedicated and have an incredible work ethics, but what it took to get through this year was just inspiring on many levels. What it did reinforce for us just how critical our seasonal workforce is. And making sure we can deliver on you know our competition. And I think in the press release you referred to, Kirsten, I think, said it best. You know, she said our mission is to create an experience of a lifetime, and our employees are core to that mission. Mm-hmm. We can't create an experience of a lifetime for our guests without first bringing this to life for our employees. And it's the people who bring our experience to life. I mean, we're in the people business. And so if we're not fully staffed, it affects everything. We wanted to make sure we could make the adjustments. And our goal is to have a fully staffed team that translates into improved employee and guest experience next winter. So we wanted to act quickly, act decisively, and make a bold move to course correct. It's a good plan. I like it. I think that it's bold. It, it demonstrates that Vale is willing to invest in its people. Just take us behind the scenes here, Bill. How did this plan come together? Who was involved and how did the company decide where it was going to focus its resources? Because this is, you know, we're looking at the plan and it's, there's a press release and it's out there, but there's a lot of ways you could have gone with this, right? So, so how did you do it and how did you decide that this was the right way to go? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you know, our job is to continuously improve, <clears throat> you know, make adjustments and we do it all the time. And I'm really proud of that, actually. And then as a company, I think we're quite good at this. And a couple of examples, even from this past winter, you know, when we realized we were having challenges um, that we didn't expect, we instituted a holiday bonus, which is you know complicated and hard to do across scale. And then we initiated a seasonal bonus of $2 per hour across the board to make an in-season adjustment for folks, realizing that you know, we had missed the mark with the $15 coming into the season. So that was as early as um, you know, pre-holiday. And then of course, in January, we were able to make these adjustments. You know, we get a ton of feedback from employees. We get a lot of research. We conduct workshops. We talk to our COOs and GMs. And really, we want to find out like what's really going on and what's really the point of friction. And I think, you know, Kirsten coming as a, as a new CEO, first 100 days, she's listening, she's learning, she's curious. 
you know, rapidly came to the conclusion that, you know, we had to our, we had to really balance our commitment to the guest experience with a renewed focus on our employee experience. You know, we're calling this a new direction for the company. And I think that's a great way to describe it. And then, of course, you know, as you mentioned, we're, we're going to spend hours and we did spend hours. What are the options? Where are the pain points? Where, how do you model it out? How does it scale? What does it mean to all employees, not just entry-level employees? And how does that work? And as you can imagine, with 40 resorts in our portfolio, seem to be 41. Yeah, you have to, it takes a lot of modeling consideration to analyze all the options and come up with the right solution. Ultimately, this is like a leadership moment. We want to lead. We want to We want to make sure that this employee experience is good and as best that it can be. And we want to take decisive and thoughtful action. So hard to walk through like actual steps and what was considered, but I would say I couldn't be prouder of where we ended up. And I, feedback from our employees so far has been, you know, roundly, you know, positive. So let's dig into each of these elements here. Let's start with the $20 an hour wage. Curious how you landed on that number. I think there's a lot of ways you could have gone with it. Obviously, you have resorts, I believe, in 15 or 16 U.S. states, and the minimum wage varies widely across those states. The In some states, it's the federal minimum of $7.25 an hour, like Pennsylvania. In California, you're looking at 14 It may even be higher in some localities. So curious how you landed on, on $20 an hour and how you landed on that being the right wage nationwide rather than a variable wage based upon the particular cost of living of each region? Yeah, a couple of things. You know, we we look at all of our resorts and the markets where we operate. And, you know, what was important to us is we wanted to make sure we set a competitive wage no matter where we bring the experience to life. So as you mentioned, in some places, some of our Eastern resorts, you know, $20 is transformative mm-hmm. for our employees. And in the other places in the Rockies, we're, we're pricing to be the top competitive employer in the marketplace. We want to differentiate Bell Resorts as the employer of choice. And so there's also an advantage to simplification. Um, we can apply it across the board for all of our employees. Not only that, the minimum wage is going to go up for some skilled positions to $21. So ski controllers, maintenance, some commercial drivers. And as I mentioned previously, we're not just focusing on the entry-level wages, we're focusing on this thing, you know, people call compression, which is like when entry goes up, what happens to the people that are just above them and just just above them? And so across all of our hourly employees, the average wage increase is nearly 30% across the board. So really dynamic, powerful, bold initiative that resonates with our employees and I think helps us be the employer of choice. So the, another important element here is the investment in HR and the uh, increase in the number of HR support staff. And that was $4 million of this $175 million annual investment. And the number that Kirsten outlined in her memo was 66 more people dedicated to employee support. And I believe those folks would actually be located within the regions. Lynch said in her note, quote, this year's challenges meant that your experience with payroll and HR support was not what we wanted it to be or what you deserve. It is our responsibility to provide you with the support you need." And quote. What did she mean by that exactly? And how will these extra employees help to fix that problem and give these employees the support they're expecting? I really admire Kirsten's authenticity and transparency about this. I think it's not the experience that we wanted for our employees on several levels. Like I mentioned before, we have Florida Resorts, so we're a large company. And like, like all major global organizations, you know, we have centralized certain functions, including HR. I think we had some advantages of, of that centralization and we had some things that, that didn't work the way we wanted them to. Some of the advantages are those bonus programs that I mentioned would have been nearly impossible if we had been running every resort off an Excel spreadsheet, you know, with people on it. And so we have to recognize that there's some real advantages to it as well. But but really the disadvantages this year landed on our employees and I feel terrible about that. I I've talked to lots of our employees and um, yeah, it's not the experience we want for them. And um, we are absolutely dedicated to providing these resources to fix it. We did have a team of hundred HR employees servicing the resort. And I think they got hit by the same challenges that we saw in the resorts. They got Omicron. <laughs> the Omicron itself created more a workload that was, you know, just somewhat overwhelming to the system and, and, and they got behind. There's mm-hmm. no question. And that's all the behind the scenes. And, and actually, employees don't care about that. What they really care about is getting timely answers to their questions and their cases when they're submitting them. And that's the what. 
that's what we need to accomplish. We need to be able to accomplish this, this best in class employee experience. And what we had this year was not what we want it to be. And we totally own that. And that's why we announced these investments. And that's why we're moving forward on it. And I think expanded capacity, 66 more people, as you called out, all will help us get to this place where the support that our employees expect is delivered in a way they expect and that they feel valued and cared for as individuals. So the people are part of a, I'll call it support ecosystem. And the other element of that is this HR app, which was got a lot of attention on social media. You know, I, I don't, from, from the outside looking in, I don't really understand what the app is or what it does. So, so talk about the HR app, why you introduced it, where it succeeded and where it fell short. Yeah, I think first of all, call, you know, it's not really an app, I guess, is the first piece. It's, um, it's meant to be a tool and it's, and it's meant to be an and. You know, it's not, I think it got characterized as an either or like, oh, it's just, you know, go on the app because uh, you don't have any other type of support with human support or whatnot. That's not the design and that's not the case. Now, it might have felt that way, like I said, to the folks in the field because of some of those um, circumstances I mentioned earlier. But it's really meant to be both. It's meant to be a technological addition to the support that employees and particularly managers can get in the field to help serve our employees in a faster, more efficient way. Now, didn't work. Didn't work the way we wanted to. Didn't work, um, certainly not in class from a technology perspective. Part of our efforts to continuously improve and this investment in our employees and our employee culture is to make sure our employees get the service that they want. And so whatever technology supports our managers, our focus is to make it best in class. It will take some time, certainly to get there, as, as you probably know, with all technology, it takes a while. But I think if you think about your modern activities and interactions with folks, you know, how many are trans, transitioning to more automation, more direct service that you drive? And I think, you know, our, the future of our employee engagement for us is both. It's the very direct relationship with their manager. You can support them and get them the answers and solve their problems, supported by a central system, technology, et cetera. So it was never meant to, like, replace the whole HR program. It was actually meant to be an add-on to the program. And, yeah, got a lot of attention and didn't work the way it was expected. Do you, do you have any tweaks that you've made for next year that you can talk about yet? Or, or are you still working on how an evolving app will work with this expanded HR human team to provide support? Yeah, I think the biggest tweak is what was just announced yesterday, where we just made public kind of the manifestation of some of those 66 people that we talked about earlier, where we've regionalized the human support so folks can get what they need when they need it and recognizing that the technology is not where we need it to be. And so we've got a, a ro robust system of support in place for next year. And I'll be the first to tell you, it, it probably won't be perfect, but the goal is to be uh, much improved over last year. And like I've said numerous times already, continuously improve. You know, it's interesting. I think that Vail has grown a lot, obviously over the past 15 years and is now a coast to coast company. And and at the same time, we've had this really weird dynamic shift of working from home, working remotely, which, of course, plays into some of that weekday traffic that you talked about earlier. But I think we're all learning a lot about what works and, and where people work the best. And for a long time, Vail was, as a lot of companies, seemed to be headed toward a kind of consolidation in Broomfield as it picked up these new properties. And then part of this plan that Kirsten announced was a, a more flexible work policy that then redistributed these folks throughout the country. So talk about that policy and, and how you're thinking about where people are and, and where they can live and be able to do their jobs most effectively. Yeah, I think this was a great outcome of COVID, if I guess, if we can count any victories through this time that we've been through. First of all, you know, our corporate culture and a strong corporate culture is key to our success. As I mentioned earlier, we're in the people business. You know, we have an office in Broomfield. We want people to be flexible. We want people to come in. And we want to connect personally. I mean, this is our sport and our company has a passion that you don't have to, you don't have to fake. We're lucky in that way. We all love it and are just so dedicated to what we're doing. So I think that's awesome. And we want to keep that going. And at the same time, not everybody can move to Denver. There are folks who are 
again, we're a global world-class company. And so we want talent that can deliver world-class results. And so being able to offer options for folks who can't or won't move to Denver is amazing. You know, some of the functions we have are are more corporate and and would be in any company that you might find. And so great, those folks can work remotely. We certainly learned during COVID that we can work remotely very effectively. Uh, we we went out of the office in Roomfield on I think it was March 14th of 2020. And we literally just reopened the office, I think, three or four weeks ago. Oh wow. <laughs> so we've been all remote ever since. Now I'm lucky I get to go up to the mountains and connect with my folks. So I tried to spend a lot of time up there during COVID as much as I could, but it's really a win-win for the company. It gives people career paths that they might not have considered because maybe they can't move because their kids are in school or their spouse has a job or something else. It gives, it opens up to talent that's external to the company that maybe can't or doesn't want to move to Denver, but we can bring them on board. And so I think expanding the talent pool and being able to, you know, respond to the trends in the marketplace. People now have discovered they can work from home and feel pretty good about it. And they want to work for companies that allow that. And um, we're one of those companies and I'm super proud of this initiative. Yeah, I think there's a lot of advantage with um, having allowing folks to live near your mountains. It's, you know, I, I've been to a lot of ski areas and, and no matter how much you study them ahead of time, it's really hard to understand the mountain and its local flavor and tradition and culture without being there on the ground, riding the lifts, skiing. And I think one of the areas where this is most important is in social media. And what I've noticed over the past couple months, and maybe this is in my head and maybe it's a coincidence, but it seemed like, to be frank with you, for a really long time, the, the ski area's social accounts were pretty boring for Vail Resorts. And they've sort of taken on a little personality over the last few months. And, and I don't know if that's deliberate or if you sort of gave them the keys or it, it's, you know, it, it used to be that they were like really promotional and very much like get your Epic Pass. And, and now you see, for example, the Vail Mountain account is saying, hey, NIMBYs, we're trying to build a housing development here. You know, why, why are you holding this up? What's going on there with social media? Yeah, I think a couple of things. I think one, we have some of the most compelling, unique, and powerful brands in the world of skiing. And of course, they should have unique voices on social and highlight all the awesome things that they're doing, whether it's terrain or events or people or what's happening in the community or whatever. And so I think they've done a quite a good job of that. But I do think in COVID, we got a little tight in terms of, of how we wanted to streamline communications because we really wanted to focus on consistency so our guests and employees knew what to expect especially, you know, as we're talking about how we're loading chairlifts or mask mandates and things like that. And so what you're probably noticing is that, well, we're mostly through that now. Our folks are, are, are moving back towards where they've been prior to that and bringing the heart and soul of each resort uh, on social media and doing it in quite a compelling and fun way. It's great to see, I think. And I think we've got great stories to tell. As regards to Eastville Housing, yeah, we've been pretty out front on that. And I think it's important because this issue is so important. And I know we're going to talk about that in a bit. You know, we need urgent action. And I think it's important for us to be able to put our point of view out into the public marketplace so folks can understand why we're pressing on this and what some of the things are behind it. So we don't want to be, you know, we're not going to be reserved when it comes to crucial issues in our communities. And we, we need to champion affordable housing in all of our communities, but especially in Vail, where we have a shovel-ready project that's been approved and that's been in the works for six years. We want to make that happen. So, yes, we've been more vocal in that uh, space for sure. Yeah, let's, let's get into housing now. This is, to me, really, I don't, I don't know if it's the most crucial piece. It's the hardest piece, I think, because the rest of these things, you can just snap your fingers and, and do it, Right. And you don't really need input from anyone else. In the case of housing, you have to work with the local communities. And, and I don't know if Vail gets enough credit for the 7,000 affordable housing units that you already maintain across your mountain resorts, but you are trying to build more. And, and this was a linchpin of Lynch's plan that she announced in, in March. She said, quote, Vail is going to aggressively pursue building new affordable housing on the land we own, and that it requires mountain communities to be fully committed to affordable housing and the approvals needed to allow us to build on the land we own, end quote. 
before we get into the specific projects, just lay this out for us, Bill. Why is this so hard? Why does this dynamic exist where if you own land, you still have to go through the community? It's a weird, I think, uh, unique circumstance to the United States. And just help us understand, like, what are you what are you dealing with and how did we get here? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't pretend to understand the dynamic across the whole country, but it, you're right. There are similarities to what's happening is that everyone agrees need affordable housing until a project gets proposed. And then everybody finds, or I shouldn't say everybody, but then significant amount of people find ways to not like it or oppose it. I don't know if I've ever been involved with a project where there was total unanimity around, yes, this is the right thing to do in the right place at the right price for the right people at the right time, like there's always like, you know, what about, what about, what about? And, you know, folks have gotten really good at gumming up the works across all of our communities, but we do have some positive examples too. I mean, we've got a, a project coming out of the ground in Park City in partnership with the Master Association there at the county, Summit County, Utah, that's going to provide for over 400 beds for this winter and ultimately over 1,100 beds for employees in the resort, um, some, not all ours, by the way. And that went pretty smoothly. And that was still years and years and years in the making. In fact, maybe first contemplated in the late 90s. Wow. So it just shows you like these things, even when there's really limited opposition, they take a long time. And it does take collaboration. It does take trust. It does take alignment in the community. And because they take so long, sometimes that alignment goes away. Uh, the Eastvale Housing Project is a great example. As recently as 2020, the town of Vail and Vail Resorts defended a lawsuit against the project and prevailed so that it could go forward. And now here we are two years later, the town of Vail is saying you can't go forward. So it just shows you like the longer these things take, sometimes circumstances change and they become more challenging to move forward with. So it's, it's disappointing to say the least. Because everyone in every community that we're in agrees that like this is an urgent need that we could all work together on. So lay this Eastvale project out for us. I know things are changing by the day, but where are you at? Well, I guess first, just for folks who may not be familiar, listeners may not be familiar, just summarize what this project is and what it would do and what the current status is of it. So the Eastvale Housing Project is a 25-acre parcel along the frontage road of I-70 Eastvale. So for those of you who've driven up and down I-70, you know, this is road shoulder space. Mm -hmm. We want to build on a small portion of the parcel. We've already dedicated two-thirds of the space or more to open space for bighorn sheep habitat. And this was a parcel that there was general understanding that I think the state of Colorado owned the land, but it turns out that Vail Resorts owned the land. So we ended up, you know, settling some tax issues and took acquisition of the land and collaborated with the town of Vail to take the existing zoning, which would have been luxury townhomes, downzone the property so that employee housing could be used. So we worked with the town of Vail for this. And this has been a six-year process and eventually getting employee housing approved on the land. Now, you know, early on, local neighborhood folks started talking about, well, traffic and access to grocery stores and quality of life. And when all those opposing views kind of got debunked, it came down to bighorn sheep habitat. There is a herd of bighorn sheep there that grazes on 18,000 acres in this vicinity. And this is part of the winter range. Interestingly enough, there are also luxury townhomes that encroach even deeper into the winter range. None of those townhomes, including I think two that are under construction today, have ever faced any sort of environmental review or any opposition to their impact on the sheep herd. Yet all of a sudden, when we're trying to build employee housing, which we all agree we need in the town of Vail, there's a study that says that we were short like 6,000 beds. So we want to build these beds. And all of a sudden now the sheep are, are going to be severely impacted by this new development, which again is along an access, uh, a frontage road of a major interstate. And so we've done mitigation work for the habitat. We've got a biologist who's worked with us. We've got expert opinions. And like I said, the town of Vail and Vail Resorts collaborated on, on this project, including up until a recent lawsuit, we worked together and we prevailed. And so and now because, you know, town council changes, the people that are on council are taking stock of the folks who live in that neighborhood who would like to oppose the project. They've threatened an eminent domain proceeding 
not only threatened, they voted to move forward with an eminent domain proceeding against the property. So that's where we are today. It's unfortunate because, as you mentioned, these things take a long time, and it's very rare to have a fully entitled shovel-ready project fully funded by Vail Resorts. This is not subsidized housing. And we want to get forward and move and, and, and build housing for our employees. And now to be said, nope, wait a minute, have you thought of other options? Is tough because other options will require years of work. Now that said, we've gotten, we've exchanged letters with the town of Vale on the other options and they put forth other options and we're considering those. But we think the best thing is to get all the beds we can get in the community, including East Vale. And that's why Kirsten put that statement that you quoted in her release. How optimistic are you, Bill, that you're going to be able to find a solution with the town of Vale? I don't know. I'm hopeful. I think, look, we're partners. We have, you know, this word collaboration gets thrown a lot around a lot. We collaborate, you know, we collaborate a lot and and it's important that we collaborate in the future. And eminent domain is a, it's aggressive. It's a, it's a tactic that I think makes the conversation harder, not easier. Nonetheless, we've committed to collaborating on solutions. I think for us, we need to see the thing that we're, we care about the most is, well, how fast, if we're going to give up on an already entitled, fully approved, ready-to-go project for 165 beds, how fast can we get any alternative in place? And how do we know there's not going to be opposition to that project? Mm -hmm. And so what we're really being asked to do is trade something that we collaborated on quite well with the town of Vale for something that's very uncertain. And uh, that's hard. Um, But we're committed to keeping dialogue going. And if there's a win-win, hopefully we can find it. I, I can't imagine how frustrating that must be when when you have employees who, you know, you're, you're talking about the mountains. So there's only so many places you can build to begin with. And, you know, gas is five bucks a gallon. You, you don't really want people living 40 miles away, right? As you try to find a better way forward and, and looking into the future past this project, you have the Evervale parcel, which theoretically could be this third village at Vale Mountain. As you, as you look long-term at developing this parcel, kind of tell us about this parcel and what it could become and how could the process be improved so that you don't face this where it takes, you know, 25 years to put up a stop sign or whatever it is. I don't know about process. I'll talk about Evervale. I think it's, um, it's a big opportunity in Vale. It's a parcel of land that's just to the west of Lion's Head. And the potential is really exciting. It could create a transformative um, new portal to the resort. It would have affordable housing, more opportunities for parking, more village experience for folks, a, a place for people to spread out across the resort. And yeah, continue to drive Vale Mountain's reputation for being one of the greatest mountain resorts in the world. And so we're excited about Evervale, but as you mentioned, Lots of work to do, mm-hmm. lots of work. And, and so we're, we're committed to doing that, but I, don't, I think it's really early to say what kind of timeline there is. And it's certainly not a, an easy transfer from Eastvale Housing to Evervale. And we will clearly um, prioritize affordable housing in Evervale when the time comes that forward. But it's going to take time because it's a really complicated project that has a lot of moving parts. Yeah, Vale Mountain is interesting. It's not like Park City or Crested Butte where you had a city or a little town or a mining town and eventually you put a ski area there, right? Vale Village was built from scratch out of the wilderness after they built the mountain back in the 60s. And it's a really nice little pedestrian fun kind of area. Could you build Vale Village today, that kind of mixed-use pedestrian uh, dense development that that probably is a smart form of development, right? Because it's you know you, you can you can have stores, you know people living above them, you can have restaurants, and and you know you park the cars kind of somewhere else, and the focus is really on human activity. How hard would it be to build something like that today at Evervale, like a Vale Village too? Yeah, I don't know. I think you know we've gone through it with Lions Head with the redevelopment. I think Evervale will be hard, but I think it's achievable to do. But yeah, it's hard. That's just the way things are these days. Um, probably, you know, in, in some respects for good reason, right? I've worked at tons of ski areas where you look at the buildings and you go, what were they thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Why do they do that that way? 
And then I've been at other ski areas where like, oh, they actually knew exactly what they were doing. And so I think it's a fairly rigorous check and balance on development in this very limited building envelopes that these resorts have across the country. So on one hand, it's good. On the other hand, it's it's complicated and takes a long time, and which means nothing can get done, you know, quickly. So the Eastvale project is one of four housing projects that the company announced that it was actively working on over the summer. The others were at Park City, alluded to that one earlier, and that was going to be 400 and, uh, 441 beds. You're working on another one at Whistler with 240 beds, and then a smaller one up in Vermont with 30 beds at Okemo. How are those projects progressing, Bill? Yeah, so um, we talked about Vail already. Okemo, we um, purchased a building, and um, we hope to have employees moving in soon. That's 30 beds, as you mentioned. So great move there. Mm-hmm. In Park City, I talked about this already, this private-public partnership. If you haven't been to Park City lately, it's pretty cool. It's coming out of the ground. It looks great. Um, we'll have 441 beds um, this coming season. And then overall, as I mentioned earlier, it's 1,100 beds. This site is actually one of the best employee housing sites I've ever seen. It's close to the bus line, like hundreds of feet. And so folks, you know, they do not need cars. It's close to the ski area. It's at the base of Canyons Village, so they can ride the cabriolet to work. Nice. Um, and so it's really spectacular. And I'm so excited that we're, we're able to do this in Park City and thankful for our partners at CVMA and Summit County. Just incredible project, probably a model for how things could get done. And then at Whistler, we're still working on projects uh, approval, and uh, which we hope will happen in July, and then move into the permitting and hopefully construction process. So good progress. You know, it, it's a big resort. It just shows you anything from 30 beds to 400 beds um, is helpful. Nice. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up today with a talk on something that you are moving ahead with very aggressively across the company, which is chairlifts. So last year, Vail announced the largest investment probably in history in a single season in lifts, over $300 million in 21 lifts across 14 ski areas. I, I, you know, I don't know where you're going with it this year. I know on Thursday last week, Bill announced three new lifts, one at Breck, one at Atitash, and one at Stevens Pass. And Kirsten indicated, well, at least the way I interpret the language was, these are the first projects we're announcing. So, so why was it time to make such a substantial investment last year? And can we expect similar investments annually, or was that a sort of special one-time outlay? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, <laughs> how fun was it for all of us to work on yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out how to do 21 lifts in one summer? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, this is what we live for in this business. I talked about North Star and Park City, those those big transformational capital projects. So yeah, it, when this started to kind of come together, it was really exciting for us. And, and we've had great partnership with the lift manufacturers and for the most part, things are going pretty smoothly across the board. So um, yeah, a big transformational move for us. And I think coming out of COVID, we just realized, hey, we can make a big impact on the guest experience, make a massive investment in our lift infrastructure and um, improve the, the overall resort experience. And I think it's what our guests expect. And these are all really impactful lifts that are going in this summer. Mm-hmm. So really fun to see those come out of the ground and start to be moving forward on that. You know, what will they do? Well, they'll, as you can probably imagine, right? They'll reduce wait times. They'll get people up quicker, you know, be able to explore more terrain, maybe give access to terrain that was harder to get to before. Mm-hmm. So again, really, really positive, good stuff. In terms of the future, yeah, we announced three lifts for next year. Kirsten mentioned that we'll reveal the rest of our capital planning for the subsequent year. I think, I don't know. I don't know if we can find 21 lifts to do every year <laughs> to do in the network. But uh, so that remains to be seen. But I think, you know, we're pretty methodical about how we deploy capital. And, and really, it's about where we can make the best guest experience. Do you have any sense for how many more lifts or how much more investment we could see later this summer announced? I think Michael made some comments in the earnings release that I'd have to refer to. Yeah. So I think I'll hold off on that for now. I'm not sure exactly what we'd say there, but I think, yeah, we're going to make some more, more investments. And as we always do, we'll, we'll, you know, there'll be where we can make the biggest uh, guest experience impact, right? Where we could solve guest problems, uh, reduce friction, provide a new offering, et cetera. So I guess I would say stay tuned or to come. You know, one, one thing that I, I noticed as I was watching all these lifts come in and go out is that Vale hasn't, to my knowledge, sold a lift or repurposed a lift 
in a number of years. And th this is actually something that is can be very valuable to independent skiers. You see this summer, Dodge Ridge is repurposing a used triple chair from Mount Rose. Lookout Pass is putting out is putting a, a quad chair from Sundance into its new expansion. Magic Mountain has been for years working on re repurposing the Sun Bowl quad from, or the Snowball quad rather from Stratton. Just curious why Vail doesn't typically resell or reuse old chairlifts. Yeah, I think, you know, we, you know, first of all, as, you, as I mentioned in my background, I've got so much affinity for independent ski areas and certainly would love to be able to help out if um, we had a lift that they wanted. And, and I field calls and I think members of our team field calls from resorts across the country from time to time. And I don't know the last, I can't tell you actually the last time we sold a lift to someone, I'm not sure when that was, but we have reused lifts um, at Okemo, for instance, we, you know, we replaced a, a quad bubble chair with a six pack. Then we moved that quad bubble to, to take out a triple. And then we took that triple to Pennsylvania. So we have done that from time to time. And I think it always just comes down to calculus. It's just time and money and bang for your buck. You know, sometimes I've seen in my experience when you re-engineer a chair, it's almost better to buy a new one. The price gets really close sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, it's just a case by case basis. It's not a big strategic decision on our part. It's a matter of just opportunistic when we have the lifts or when we have a, a buyer who may be interested. So let's talk about some of these projects specifically. The one I'm most excited about is the terrain expansion at Keystone, the Bergman Bowl terrain expansion. Tell us about that expansion, what kind of lift you're putting in there and what folks will find when they show up at Keystone this year. Yeah, so Bergman's going to get a six-pack lift. This is previously hiked to terrain. So it's got 16 trails and 555 acres. And I got I have to tell you, I've had a few Bergman Bowl tours uh, with Forest Service and other folks in our company to kind of preview Bergman. Now, it was available to the public previously, but you either had to hike or, or ride a snowcat. And I had two of the best days I've ever had in the last decade in Bergman Bowl. <laughs> it was so great. So the bowl itself skis really well. It's above treeline. It's, you know, it's an intermediate bowl. There's also hike to advanced terrain kind of on both sides. It's going to really open up Keystone Mountain, take folks onto this terrain that a lot of intermediate skiers don't get to access. They'll have the views, they'll have the powder, Bluebird Day and the bowl in the West. It's great. So um, we're excited about this. Um, we're also going to have some snowmaking in it, uh, about 30 acres, so that you know we can have consistent and reliable egress out of there. And we'll be grooming 200 acres of terrain in there. So again, this is a huge expansion for Keystone, and included in that is a 6,000 square foot expansion of the Outpost Restaurant. Mm -hmm. So folks will be able to go there and really spend a lot of time out in the bowl and in the restaurant itself. So it's it's quite exciting. It's, and it, as you know, it's been contemplated for quite some time. So it's amazing to get going with this project. A lot of folks have worked on this project for many years and um, really grateful for all the work they did. And down the road at Vail, you have two lifts going in. One is Game Creek, a replacement, and Sundown is actually a brand new lift. Tell us about those lifts and your thinking behind those and why it was time to make that upgrade and to add a new lift in the back holes. Yeah, I think Sundown Express has uh, been in our master plan for a long time, and it, it takes pressure off High Noon Express, which is the, the bottom terminals will be right next to each other, providing egress out of Sun Up and Sundown Bowls, which is great. Also, it allows us to open some back bowls while we're doing avalanche mitigation in China Bowl. Sometimes when we're doing mitigation in China Bowl after a wind event, you know, for instance, we, you know, we have to keep some terrain closed because we don't want folks to get in there. This will allow us to open the mountain differently and offer up some different options during those days when we've got some avi holds going on. There's also a great way to egress the mountain back to Lion's Head from the new lift because it, it, it lands a little further up on the ridge so you can ski all the way back to Lion's Head. So that lift is going to be really transformational for folks in the back bowls of Vale. It really reopens up some terrain that you would have to do a big lap before to get to. And now you can just lap it on that lift. So that's fantastic. On Game Creek, it's, it's you know, quite simply that that lift was the oldest lift on the mountain. It was built in 1985, has had, you know, some reliability issues. It's a bowl. So if it goes down well, while people are skiing down, they, they're, they're stuck down there for a while and causes a bit of an issue. So we want to make sure we got a new, modern, reliable six-pack lift in there, and it should really help this experience. And yeah, Game Creek is 
already gone. It's uh, gone to the recycling process. So here we go. Wow. Amazing. All right. Last question for you here. Give us an update in Park City. There's been some delays on the lifts on that mountain, but you're going to upgrade Silverload from a six to an eight and Eagle from a four to a six. And, and Silverload, I confirmed this with LiftLog, that will be the first six pack in the United States to retire. So they, they, the first one went in Boyne Mountain in, I believe, 1991, and this will be the, the first one to come out. So kind of a milestone there, but um, it looks like you have a hurdle to jump over before you get there. So where are you at with Park City? Yeah, it's, if you've been following this, it's disappointing. I mean, I think in a town that has, I think, over 70 lifts, to do two replacement lifts should, you know, really not be controversial at all. Um, but as you talked about earlier, you know, things aren't what they have been. And there's been a small group of people who've been vocal about what it means to the resort and what it means to traffic and things like that. And really, these are these are guest experience upgrades for the existing guests. It gives better out-of-base capacity of the Park City base area. The, the um, alignment of the Eagle Lift goes to the top of King Con, which really makes it useful to get folks out of the base. So it really takes pressure off Payday and Crescent. And, mm-hmm. you know, we heard all year about lift lines and here we are trying to spend capital to alleviate lift lines. And yet we've got a few people who want to keep things the way they are. And, and then the cool thing about the Eagle Lift, which I'm not sure everyone knows, is it also is designed with a mid-station in it. So that will that will also provide access to the Three Kings Terrain Park plus beginner terrain, which will take pressure off first time lift, which does get a fair amount of lift lines mm-hmm. um, pretty consistently across the season. And then, of course, the Silver Load will be the first eight pack in our company in um, North America. We do have an eight pack in Australia, but we're excited to get that going. And, and Silver Load is one of the most popular lifts on the mountain. It's a good transfer lift at the end of the day to get back to the front side. Services a, a great deal of very popular intermediate terrain. So we're hoping we'll get get those projects going forward. Where we are today is we've got a hearing on Wednesday. Um, hopefully the appeal will be rejected. So the, the projects have been approved. And then a handful of folks have decided to appeal the projects. Uh, we'll be meeting on Wednesday with the planning commission to hear those appeals. And we expect that the appeal will be denied and we'll get going with our projects. Certainly grateful to the staff. The staff has done a really great job answering questions, putting together a very robust uh, staff report. And yeah, I think probably get, um, hopefully the appeal gets denied and we'll get forward with it. And um, if not, we'll figure out plan B. All right. Well, Bill, I wish you the best of luck with that. And with all of these other projects we discussed, it is a very exciting time for Vail Resorts. I do hope that you get a little time off in the summer to relax a little bit and, and enjoy that Rocky Mountain air. So I really thank you for your time today and, and, uh, and really appreciate all your insight here on all the things that the company is doing as it just continues to evolve. Yeah, Stuart, thanks for the time. Really a pleasure to chat with you too. Appreciate you. That's Bill Rock, Chief Operating Officer of Vail Resorts Rocky Mountain Region and Executive Vice President of Vail Resorts Mountain Division. Thank you very much for that, Bill. Awesome to get your insight on how Vail is owning its struggles and carrying on through some very challenging local conditions. The Park City thing is especially silly to me. These are literally just new lifts replacing existing lifts. Do you actually have nothing better to do? Go help the knuckleheads up the canyon who are trying to shut down the Little Cottonwood gondola proposal. At least they will probably win. All right, thank you all for listening. Really big week for the Storm Skiing Podcast. We have Snow Partners CEO, Joe Hessian, and Altera Mountain Company CEO, Rusty Gregory, still to come. Look for those sometime within the next week. I've got 20 more podcasts on the books through the end of the year. And of course, I will be adding more to that. You will be able to get those directly to your inbox after you sign up for the free or paid versions of the email newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, please follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.